And I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 to 38. And as we read the text today, the main thing to see is the startling shift in the middle of verse 35. And I'll point it out when we get there, and it makes all the difference in the way you see God, the way you see the life of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty nine. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell, if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Shift. Others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Father, I pray that this word of God would not meet with indifference or unbelief this morning, but that it would, in all of its glory and gory reality, awaken faith and help us be ready to escape and to die. Lord, sober this people here this morning. Not many media encourage sobriety of thought in the face of death and suffering. Most of our lives are spent under the influence of powers that are attempting to help us escape reality. 
Only the Bible, in the end, deals with reality. And this is a really real text this morning. And I pray that many who are living in the dream world of the media or of daily, ordinary life out of touch with eternity would wake up right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians and non-Christians, both, and I assume they're both in the room right now, can have defective views of God and the ways of God with man. Preaching the Word of God is intended, at least as I understand it and attempt to do it, preaching the Word of God is meant to bring views of God and His ways with man more and more away from defectiveness and into accord with truth, more and more. That's what we're about, week in and week out. Trying to refine our vision of who God is and the way He does things with our lives so that He and His ways accord with reality, with what is, with what's biblical. Now, I do that for unbelievers so that you can assess and then embrace Christianity on the basis of true views and not distorted views, which are so prevalent. So I'm glad you're here. And I do it for believers so that we will live our lives not on the basis of defective or distorted and especially discouraging views of God and His ways with people. Now this text, I can remember the first time I was walloped by the shift in verse 35. And the life-changing effect it had on me in my understanding of God and faith and suffering. And I hope, I pray that it will have a similar effect on you. Because this is a powerful chapter. These verses 29 to 35a and 35b to 38, if you understand those two and how they fit together under one God, through one kind of faith, you will have a vision of God and a vision of His ways with people that will make you like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaves keep on coming and fruit keeps coming and wood gets stronger no matter what kinds of winds blow across you. And I'll want that for you so bad. Okay? Now, I have five points to make. They're not long, and I think they are all clearly rooted in this text. I'll mention the point, and then I'll try to unpack it from these verses. Point number one. Through our faith, faith is the dominant theme of this chapter, through our faith, God can and does work miracles and acts of providence 
to help and deliver His people from pain and misery. That's point number one. I use the word miracles and acts of providence carefully. I want to explain those terms. I say God can and does yesterday, today, and tomorrow work miracles to deliver His people from pain and suffering. Now I base that upon verses 29 to 35a. And what I mean by miracles are things that are God's interruption into the ordinary cause-effect way things usually work. There are five of them here, at least. For example, verse 29, the dividing of the Red Sea. Verse 30, the falling down of big, thick city walls at the blowing of trumpets. Uh, Verse 33, the shutting of the mouths of lions. For example, when David was thrown to hungry lions and they didn't eat him all night long. Or verse 34, the quenching of fire. I assume it's referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown into the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar and they walked around in the flame. Now those are what I call miracles. God does that sort of thing and he does it through faith. And he can do it today, and he does it. That's the first thing he does. Now, I use the term acts of providence for the less extraordinary, but no less God-intensive things that God does in the world. And there are several of these mentioned here as well. For example, Rahab says, uh, in verse 31, did not perish because she had faith. Well, you look at that, well, there's nothing especially miraculous about that. She had heard that the people had broken through the Red Sea. They had wiped out the king of Edom and Bashan, and they were coming against Jericho, and she decided, I'm going to go with the true God. And she survived by faith. Another example is uh, conquering kingdoms in verse 34. I assume that refers to David's great exploits. Nothing especially miraculous about winning those kinds of triumphs necessarily. Establishing righteousness. Escaping the sword like when Elijah was not killed by Jezebel because he hightailed it to the outskirts. He did that by faith and so on. So there are, there are ways that God works in our lives that are not what we call miraculous but are no less wonderful ways by which he blesses us and grants us escape from suffering and from misery. Now, the point here is that all of these miracles listed in verses 25, 29 and 35, and these acts of providence are by faith. Just notice that. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. 31, right, that was... Uh, 30, they passed through the Red Sea. 31, the Jericho fell down. 33, Rahab didn't perish. By faith, they conquered kingdoms. So that's all by faith. So my first point, very simple, is that through your faith, God can and does work miracles and acts of providence by which he delivers from suffering and grants escape 
and practical help on this earth. Point number two. God does not always work miracles and acts of providence for our deliverance from suffering, but sometimes by faith sustains his people through horrendous suffering. That's point number two. That was long, but simple, wasn't it? Not always does he work miracles and acts of providence to deliver us from suffering, but he sustains us by that same faith through suffering. Now, I base this on verses 35 to 38. Another way to say it would be, having true faith in God is no guarantee of comfort, security in this life. Now, I cannot tell you how important it is for you to believe this. If you want to stay a Christian... Verses 35 to 38 are very, very painful verses. And they say, I think very plainly, that the miseries of God's people come by faith and are endured not because of unbelief, but by faith. Notice verse 33. I'm going to make this crystal clear so that you can point to the actual words that show you that all the miseries, there's ten of them listed here, depending on how you count, all the miseries of verses 35b to 38 are through faith. Look at verse 33. It says, By faith they conquered kingdoms, and then without any break... The sequence and the list continues right into verse 35. It is by faith that others were tortured and others experienced mockings and scourgings. The phrase by faith in verse 33 carries us all the way to verse 38. Now, if you doubt that, drop your eyes down to verse uh, 39. And we can just read it in reverse. Verse 39 says... Summary. All of these, now the these refers to the misery and the suffering people in verses 35 to 38. All of these, having gained approval through their faith. Now is that clear enough? These people were being slaughtered. Not because they displeased the Lord or lacked faith. Do you hear it? If you got it, take that verse and believe it. These people, verse 39 says, gained approval through their faith. In fact, they suffered through their faith. They embraced it through their faith. Suffering. Misery, destitution, torture, ill-treatment, lacking clothes are not owing to God's disapproval. Rather, God's approval is resting on them because of their faith. Now, let's be specific here because there are many of us who simply don't believe this when it happens to us. We don't believe it. 
get angry at God and we think he's punishing us for some lack and it seems out of proportion we feel. Let's go to right to the biggie. Verse 35, second half of the verse says, Others were tortured. This means that God does not always turn the hearts of your torturers away from their torture, though he could. Say that again. This means that God does not always influence the hearts of the torturer to stop torturing you, though he could. He could do that. Now, some would say, now, wait a minute, they would say, the torturers have free will. And God can't intervene and mess up the system of free will. He has limited himself. That's not true. That's not true. You need to disbelieve that when you read it in books, even books by people you admire. Let me give you an illustration for why I do not believe it. The Bible is simply replete with instances of God's influencing the wills of men to restrain them from evil and to channel their evil. For example, you remember the time that uh, Abraham went down into Egypt and lied about his wife and said, she's my sister, so that Abimelech, the king, wouldn't uh, kill him because she's so pretty and add her to his harem. Not a very great thing for Abraham to do, but he did it. So, Abimelech takes her as his sister into his harem. First night into the harem, what do you do? You, you sleep with her. She's pretty. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And God came to him in the morning after he had discovered that she was his wife. And this is what God said to Abimelech. I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, if you tell me God can't do that sort of thing to torturers in the back room of a jail in Mozambique, I won't believe you. Therefore, when we scream under the knife or the rack. There's no point in screaming, fix the system of free will, which would be a reasonable request, I think. There are other things to scream 
about and other things to say. I really, I really am burdened about this because of how prevalent this solution is to the problem of suffering. And I want to read you. I, I don't want to, to go after a person this morning as I read this awful quote. But I, I want you to know, this is a very popular book I have in my hand here. I don't even feel inclined to hold it up so you can tell what it is. A lot of you have read it. A lot of you know this author. And a lot of you would admire this person. And this is horrendous theology here. But I'll read it to you. And I hope that you can measure this. And I read it simply because I'm your shepherd. And my responsibility is to protect you from wolf-like teaching, if not from wolves, and to feed you with food that will help you die well. Okay? When an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. I hate that sentence with a passion. Of course, God allowed the event to occur because his ultimate purpose includes having free agents. And this freedom, as I argued in an earlier letter, must be irrevocable. But to allow something and to purpose it or cause it are two very different things. I know Christians frequently speak about, quote, the purpose of God in the midst of a tragedy caused by someone else. Which, by the way, is what verses 35 to 38 are all about. Mark this. These are tragedies being caused by hostilities. Most of them. Not all of them. I know Christians frequently ask about the purpose of God in the midst of tragedy caused by someone else. There was a young girl this year at Bethel who was killed by a drunk driver. And a lot of students were wondering what purpose God had in, quote, taking her home. But this I regard to simply be a piously confused way of thinking. The drunk driver alone is to blame for the girl's untimely death. The only purpose of God in the whole thing is his design to allow morally responsible people the right to decide whether to drink responsibly or irresponsibly. When we get to chapter 12 in two weeks, we're going to smash that thing with all our might. Because chapter 12... I wish I could preach on it today. Chapter 11 is just setting us up for chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a description of our Father who disciplines us for a purpose. And the discipline in context is the slaughter of chapter 11. That'll be very plain. Effected by evil people upon other people using their wills, which God could, if he pleased, restrain without calling their moral 
accountability into question. If this is your theology that I just read, you will be very uncomfortable in this church. Because it isn't mine, and I loathe this theology. It's very quiet in here, isn't it? It's funny how when when you make plain the lines, when you draw the contours of issues, instead of just letting the kind of fog, we're all together, it's all one, everything's okay, we all think the same thing about Jesus, then we can all be happy. And But if you lay it out and you draw the lines clearly, people, ooh, something at stake here. Let me give you another example of this second point. Look at verse 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Now this is almost too horrible to think about. Tradition has it that Isaiah was sawn in two alive. Isaiah. Isaiah. There isn't anybody greater than Isaiah in the Old Testament, is there? Sawn in two. Imagine this, how forsaken you might feel if not only death lies in front of you, but somebody was devising a way to make death as horrible as it possibly could be. Now that has happened. It may be happening as I speak in certain countries of the world. It's happened to people of whom the world is not worthy, verse 38 says. And the Bible teaches God could stop that if he pleased. He could stop that. Just like he stopped Abimelech from committing adultery with Abraham's wife. And he could do it without nullifying the accountability of anybody's Will. That's the point. Isn't that the point of verses 29 to 35? Get this. Isn't the point of verses 29 to 35, God can get people out of scrapes. He can cause them to escape. He can deliver them in miraculous ways. He doesn't have to let them be tortured. That's the point of verses 29 to 35. Which means that when verses 35 to 38 says they are tortured, they are slain, they are destitute, they are beheaded, it means he didn't do it. He chose not to do what he was doing in verses 29 to 35. The clearest picture of this, I remember when I first saw this, the clearest picture is in the contrast between verse 34 and 37. Do you see the phrase in verse 34? They escaped the edge of the sword. And then do you see the phrase in verse 37? They were put to death with the sword. By faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. Faith brought them a miraculous deliverance from the sword. Verse 37, by faith, they were killed by the sword. By faith, 
God brought them home. Or to use the phrase that was in italics and quotes in this book, God took them home. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord over the rent body of Isaiah. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Do you remember how starkly it's portrayed for us there? Let me read it. About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So, James, the second martyr. First Stephen, and then James is beheaded. And then Herod notices the Jews really like this. And so it says, he arrested Peter, planning to do the same thing to Peter. And what happened? In the night, an angel of the Lord comes, knocks the shackles off of Peter, blinds the guards, opens the locked door, sends him out, and basically says, I have a few more decades of work for you, not James. Verse 34, Peter He escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 37, James, he died by the edge of the sword. That's point two. God does not always use miracles and providence to grant us escape. By faith, he sustains his people through the suffering that he permits and ordains. Point number three. Now, this is a conclusion I draw from the first two points. Having faith is not the ultimate determining factor in whether you suffer or escape. God is. Having faith, therefore... Since you can escape by it, and since you can die by it, having faith is not the ultimate decisive factor in whether you live or whether you die. God is. His sovereign will and wisdom and love. This is tremendously comforting to me. You may have to wrestle with it. I don't know where you're coming from theologically. I wept over these things for months. And I don't pressure anybody to make hasty jumps into the embracing of a God of sovereign love. But once you're over the hump, it's incredibly comforting. It is a great relief to me to know that there is a higher explanation for my pain than whether I measure up in faith. I tell you, that's so comforting. Because if I had to come to my... I I went into the doctor's office about two months ago to have four biopsies on little things all over my skin. They come here and here and here. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I'll die of skin cancer. That'd be gruesome. 
And I thought about it. I think about those things a lot. Every time I feel bad, I think about dying. And I really think about it. I really, really imagine it. And if I had to come to terms with the fact that I'm dying because I don't have faith, I don't know what I would do. Well, I'm just going to give you a pastoral warning here. In this church, while I hold any sway of influence, we're not going to treat dying people that way. We're not going to say that. Okay? Okay? You'll deal with me if you do. If you look a dying person in the face and say, you know, if you had faith, you wouldn't be dying. I'm going to be on your case. You know what we're going to say? We're going to say, Patty, trust God. Trust God. Because whether you live by faith or whether you die by faith, He'll take care of you. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what we're going to say. Trust God. Have faith. So whether you live or whether you die, And you don't decide that, and I don't decide that. God will take care of you. He will do that. That's point number three. Point number four. The common feature in the faith that escapes suffering and the faith that endures suffering is this. Both of them involve believing that God himself is better than what life can give you now and what death will take from you later. Let me try to shorten that down. Point number four is the common defining, distinguishing element of the faith that escapes the sword or the cancer and the faith that dies by the sword or the cancer. The common element of that faith is that it considers God better than what life can give now and what death can take later. Faith says, if I've got it all, God is better. And faith says, if I lose it all, God is better. That's what faith says. If I've got it all, and most of us in this room have it all compared to the world, God is better. You better learn to say it now because you're going to lose it all. And if you haven't said it now when you've got it all, you won't be able to say it then when you lose it all because you will have loved it all instead of God. That's why I'm preaching this now. While you've got some time to change your theology so that you have roots that you can die by when the time comes. You've got to learn to live by God if you want to die by God. The key verse here again is 35. By faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. That's the widow of Zarephath. Remember her? Little boy died. And Elisha raised him from the dead. By faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, 
in order that they might obtain a better resurrection, better than the little boys. Why was it better? The little boy had to die again. He came back to, and he had his life. Ray, he had my life. I have my life and that's good. I want life. I like living. But if we don't like something more than living, we don't know God. We don't know Him. It is better than resurrection back to life. Better than the Lazarus thing. In other words, faith is utterly in love with God. Faith is utterly in love with God. I, the Lord, the Lord came down. You know, sometimes you have these little. The Germans call them Lichtungen, little lightnings, and it's it's like you're walking through a wood. Trees are high, so you can't see the sky, and suddenly, you walk out into a little clearing, and the light is just right down on you. That's a Lichtung. I had one of those last night about halfway along the sidewalk between the garage and the house in which I I was thinking about this text all day long. In fact, I've been thinking about it for weeks and how hard this is and how glorious it is. And it was as though this particular point in the sermon, faith says God is everything. Just kind of... And I found myself just kind of in one of those ecstatic moments saying, I love you. 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 Oh, let me die by this love. Oh, God, let me die by this love. Don't take this away from me. You are precious beyond words. You don't have to have those kinds of extraordinary emotional moments in your life in order to love God. But you do need to make a lot of choices. Faith loves God more than job, retirement, ministry, writing books, building dream houses, making your first million, having your first baby. Faith says, whether he treats me tenderly or whether he gives me up to torture, I Love God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He is my better and lasting treasure, chapter 10, verse 34. He's my reward, chapter 11, verse 6. He's the builder and maker of the city that I long for. Verse 16. He's the unseen reward that I look to. Verse 26. He is the treasure that outstrips and outlasts all the treasures of Egypt. Verse 26 and 27. Oh, how we need to cultivate this. And that leads me to my last, my last uh, point. Um, those who suffer willingly and accept it and in the midst of suffering see God and say I do not understand what you are doing here but you are God and the hidden things belong to you and faith is I trust you 
when that kind of person happens in the world and they accept suffering and trust God and love God, they are a gift to the world. Now, you wonder, where does that come out of this text? Let me show you. This is my last point. It comes from verses 37 and 38. They are gifts to the world. Verse 37 in the middle start. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute. Notice no promise of a preppy blouses or cool slacks. Afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. What does that mean? There's where I get it. Men, people, people of whom the world was not worthy. What does that mean? The world was not worthy of these ill-treated, destitute, apparently cursed, suffering nobodies. The world wasn't worthy of them. What does that mean? It means they were gifts to the world and the world didn't deserve the gift. You know what that means? When you're not worthy of something, you've been given it or the attempt has been made to give it to you and you prove to be undeserving of the gift. So I conclude that when you watch a suffering Christian who appears to be just nobody, stuck away in a hospice or a hospital or a home or an Augustana fourth floor, saying, I don't get it, it hurts, but I trust you, I trust you, I love you, you're my only hope, when everything fades and is gone, you, when all around my soul gives way, then you are all my hope and stay. That person is a gift to the world. You know why? Because at that moment, there is a picture and a message that's very powerful that the world needs to hear. And it isn't on television. Nowhere. Nowhere. And the message is, trust God. He is more to be desired than everything life can offer you now and everything death can take from you later. Trust Him. Love Him. Cherish Him. Savor Him. We exist as a church to cultivate hearts of death-defying passion for God. Say it again. My life in this pulpit, your small group, your Sunday school class, your soccer camp, your personal phone calling to a friend, your neighborhood Bible studies for kids, your ministries that I can't even begin to announce, all of them exist to help cultivate and then spread hearts of death-defying passion for God that go way beyond what this world can offer.
or take. And so I pray earnestly that we would be that kind of people. God is gracing the world with sufferers right now. God might even grant you to be such a gift to the world. I want the worship team to come and I want you to take your worship folder and go to the back page again. It's almost a theme song for us at Bethlehem and I love it being that way. The song, It Is Well With My Soul, we sang it with heart at the beginning and I want us to sing part of it. Perhaps now that you've heard about what some have endured and what you might have to endure. I want us to sing it with heart again. And and may I invite those who came into this room as unbelievers or maybe borderline believers, kind of wobbling and not knowing where you stand with God. If if you've been confronted with a, a reality and God has spoken in this service so that you feel yourself drawn to reality, to deal with the living Sovereign, wise, loving God, of whom we can say, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He should be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. If that kind of God has begun to feel and to appeal to your mind and to your heart as a winsome God that you would like to know and embrace, you know what you could do right now? You could whisper in the quietness of your heart, there are many questions I do not have answered, God. But I bow before this reality and I want to embrace and know you.